uh, was a more akin to an Arab fundamentalist than a Pakistani fundamentalist, yet closer to a Pakistani fundamentalist than, say, an Arab Christian. But you also go on to argue that embracing nationalism holds lasting power over people feeling about an identity. Well, if the core concept in the book is really the same as ethnicity, which is a subjective belief in common ancestry, which is what makes us the ethnic ethnic community. Now, these ethnic communities also have to be able to distinguish their members from members of other ethnic communities, and that's typically done through one or more of uh, language, religion, or physical appearance. The only thing I would say, however, is that in many cases, the boundary lines between groups are fuzzy. And, you know, if you think about, for example, um, an assimilated Kurd in Turkey versus an ethnic Kurd, that's a kind of fuzzy line. And there's a lot of examples in Ukrainian and Russia. A Ukrainian who's Russian-speaking might have a Russian-sounding Russian group, might have a Ukrainian sounding group. And there's kind of a blurry boundary. So you have a lot of cases where the, bur- the boundaries are blurry. situations where religion overrides race and clearly that you know if you took an a Jew who was black and from Ethiopia a European Jew is going to feel closer to that person than you know somebody who is Arab but maybe looks closer to, to that European Jew. So so there clearly the the ethnicity is signified by religion is over overpowering the on the surface to be a racial resemblance, but typically European view closer to the Arab than to the African than race and power work. So it just depends which marker signifies the subjective linguistic identity. That's what's key. And now sometimes it is race. So when we in the United States South, um, you know, a, a black Protestant and a white Protestant, a white Protestant feels closer to the white Jew than to the black Protestant despite sharing religion with the black Protestant, because that's how ethnicity and, and, and what's been given significance socially. Now, the only way I, what I would say is that it's, I don't think it's absolutely equal socially. That's when race can be the tiebreaker, but most times history will have to treat memorialization to be more important. I mean, I remember in Northern Ireland being at a July 12th parade to the Protestant community there, and, and there would be, well, you know, black, would sometimes march, you know, black Protestant Harrington would march in that parade from Africa, would be welcomed in the rain to the castle in Northern Ireland would be seen violently as being that. So, so it, it just depends on the situation, what has become uh, salient for marking out ethnic identity. In terms of the way that racial nationalism can be used then, Let's talk a little bit about some traditions. So much has been written about these personal beliefs about race and culture, but doesn't that inure traditional on these things in your view? I, I think you may have some inkling, but I think it's very fungible. And I think that, as I say in the book, I mean, until quite recently, he's been very much open for not open for but he's been sort of liberal on immigration. You know, he was very critical of Pat Buchanan, for example. Um, and, you know, there's this quote, well, Buchanan, he's against the, the Jews, he's against immigrants, and they want to come to this country. He's sort of very 
modification, what, now would you seem to kind of be Republican, Republican National Committee type view on climate change? And that really changed it if this is quite right. I have been told that he actually did come to a more protectionist position prior to taking office. But I'm not sure he can't really be understood as an ideologue. I think he sort of sensed where the wind was blowing and I think he's somewhat in, he's quite instrumental in this case. And, and he's actually flipped and flopped around on some of these questions. I just see in the news now that his chief of staff says that uh, the U.S. desperately needs more immigration and, and he's, you know, the Kushner wing of the, you know, the faction seems to be also relatively pro-legal immigration. Um, so he sort of arbitrates between these competing factions and I'm not sure his instincts are particularly strong. There's an interesting segment that points to the fact that the political importance of immigration to the problems affecting white populations almost always mirrors the media's coverage of immigration. So you give the example of the US media where during a slow month, say, 12 negative articles, there's a 7% increase in the number of people who say that immigration is the most important issue facing the state. Uh, a trivial month, 60 negative articles on immigration, it increases to 43% who say the same. Can we talk a little bit about this and about how market segmentation, channels, both radio, television, and others, pushed these odds to audiences with specific opinions around immigration that have led to this growth in popular sentiment and the inability of people to choose from a point of view? Yeah, okay, so there's some, some interesting things there. I mean, I'd say the first thing to note is this link between immigration levels, media coverage, and rising salience. So the what happens is that's where people switch. If they're tired of immigration, the people who were pro-immigration before don't tend to be coming out. Those, your immigration attitudes, whether you want less or more, are very largely driven by deep psychological factors and ideological factors. However, what happens is that with immigration numbers, more media coverage, immigration rises up the agenda of people who, who already said they wanted less, but maybe the economy or foreign policy is another one issue. Now, and that's what happens is a larger share of people who say immigration is the most important issue facing American life. And once that happens, the popular right polls start to go up. So there was a study in, in looked at nine out of ten West European countries between 2005 and 2016. Um, and what they found is essentially this goes to this lady's head. Wherever immigration numbers went, media coverage went. And then the importance of immigration started to rise. So that's the key link, and, and actually that's gone down in this country to a structural and therefore inheritance to the lower. The populist right is going to do less well in these situations. Um, of course, one of the big questions is, in this country, well, what's going to happen post-Brexit? Uh, you would expect a populist right new party to emerge. So that's a sort of broad natural relationship, but of course you've also had media fragmentation if you don't win. The U.S. faces interesting Fox News, for example, was quite pro-immigration, or at least wasn't raising the issue of immigration anywhere near it did after 2015. So if you recall, Fox News was actually anti-Trump, was opposing Trump, and there was a whole Megyn Kelly incident. But really, Fox News was aligned to the Republican Party establishment around Yes, it would talk about illegal immigration, but it didn't really want that much about the general issue, the legal numbers, and certainly didn't want to make them a 
money and appreciate that quality and that kind of stuff. And, and where there's still the humanity of this person, you get the different ideologies. And that's kind of one of the reasons why you can have the positive aspect towards, say, a child marrying somebody of the other party in that particular segment of well-educated, elite, if you like, liberals in America. You see that here, too, in Britain. On the Leave Remain question, for example, Remainers are, are considerably more negative towards leavers. You know, they're child marrying leavers, and leavers because they're child marrying And part of it is just that sort of morally to that particular view is, well, if you're morally superior to them, they're retrograde, and therefore this is the justification. But they wouldn't see it as tribalism, which it is. Number two is a morally justified You argue that at a quote value, the individual social psychological makeup of an individual is much greater to explain the vote than demographic genocide. What do the studies show this most vividly? Well, I think, for example, if you look at the Russia vote, I mean, we could do this just across the board with any other country as well, but you can look at income and see that there's no, essentially no difference between rich and poor white Americans in the country to vote Trump and those who other countries. Um, you can look at the Brexit voters, people. There is a difference, but it's not a great difference between rich and poor uh, in terms of voting leave. Yes, poor people are more likely to vote leave than rich, but it's not that big. Whereas education level, people having a less great age to school without qualifications versus having a degree, they'll be much more consistent to their choice uh, than any kind of class or where they lost a job. Anything material doesn't seem to matter very much. However, even education is not as important as, for example, the views on the death penalty. Um, if you strongly support the death penalty, then you're much more likely to be anti-immigration, much more likely to be a leader, and therefore against the death penalty. So the paper, as so authored by the brilliant social psychologist Jonathan Haidt, explains that people who favor tighter immigration policies also favor family over friendship, whereas those who favor looser immigration policies favor friendship over family. Our attitude towards freedom of movement, people who agree how fondly we as individuals feel towards our own origins. I think there is a range, yes. I mean, it's, it's mediated by different things. But, for example, if you take the rich people, quote unquote, family is everything. How much do you agree with them on a five point strongly agree to strongly disagree? And then we look at views on immigration. People who strongly agree that family is everything, and even if you just take people under 30, only people under 30 who strongly agree with that statement, family is everything, um, they are much, much more anti-immigration than people who disagree with that statement. So, for example, amongst people who want immigration reduced or not, and who are under age 30, about 73% of them would agree with the statement, family is everything. Amongst under 30s who want more liberal immigration, only about 30 or 35 percent would agree with that statement. So it's a 40 point difference in views on family. We also know, for example, we also know that, for example, views on family affect attachment to ancestral goods, which is, which affects attachment to lineage goods. That's also important. So that orientation, when Jonathan Haidt talks about it, 
but yes, some people have that more uh, family-oriented approach to it. Things are going into whether they're going to be safe and expensive, which is more important to look at. But you know, you get kind of orientations with the psychological. They're not definitive, so you can still be have a kind of orientation to say, "Man, I want to be pro-life or not." That could be, or vice versa. But it is an influence, and so I just made it right to to make that point. So it's easy to be heading to the book where you're talking about what type of therapy can we do to maximize the chance of a secure future. You, you sort of describe the two choices the other therapies have. You either become a purely white, only minority in a country that is majority non-white, or you have a majority mixed race which identifies as white. And you're saying that this is kind of going to be optimal. Well, uh, yeah, I would think that would be... And the reason I say that is for two reasons. One is that yeah, if you become a racial parent, then you know, I think there are probably you don't I think there's more negative implications in terms of hierarchy and so on. But also um, I do think that it's a secure and melting pot majority in any case of society is actually more cohesive. But actually what people don't realize is that the so called civic national concept relies implicitly on a secure ethnic majority. And it's the sort of